0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. For the ministry of the Word, we'll turn to reading from Psalm 19 and then from Romans chapter 1. So we first read the 19th Psalm. For the director of music, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion. Like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now let's read from Romans chapter 1 to see what sinful man does with this. Knowledge of God received through creation. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 19 is grand. It's super abundantly positive in speaking about The glory of God in the creation around us, in the heavens above us, and the magnificence and the wonder of God's instruction toward us in His Word, it's got these lofty words, lofty terms to express awe and praise for God's perfect works. And it also reaches very far. It claims that everyone has access to this glory and this knowledge of God. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Now let's imagine for a moment something in our culture and in our world, generally that's becoming more and more everywhere. Take the internet, for example. Everyone should have access. Its line or its voice goes out to the ends of the earth. Or we could maybe say it about GPS. As long as you can pick up a few satellites and your GPS is programmed, you yourself can go to the ends of the earth and get back by the shortest route. But what GPS can do and how glorious it is, well, that really pales in comparison to God and His works. GPS is great, but it doesn't awe us day in and day out, night after night. It doesn't teach us anything we haven't already programmed into it. The fact that God gave humans the ability to put technology to such use is great. And it's to His glory. But it doesn't declare His glory as directly as the heavens above us. GPS doesn't have the power to humble us. Nor does the Internet. They don't straightaway put us in a moral relationship. In this sense, technology is neutral. Neutral. But God's revelation in His Word and His revelation in creation isn't like that. It confronts us. And it puts us in our place, minimizing and humbling us. God's revelation reveals God. And therefore, it immediately places a moral dilemma before us. How will we relate to this greater One who is confronting us. And that question keeps bubbling up. And it has to be held under actively by humans, kept under the surface. And all the suppressing that humanity does just proves all the more that the question is there. All the avoidance mechanisms. How will we relate to this greater One? All people are faced with this question by virtue of processing the creation through their five senses and just being in it and being a part of it. There's something very awesome about it that humbles us and should move us to seek God. And this I think is the very point that the Psalm drives home when you get to the end and each one of us is personally faced with the ending of the Psalm. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. And then the ending, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. So if our hearts are really in this psalm, then that's the conclusion we should be coming to as well. Just like David did in the verses 12-14. to After he had confessed God's revelation in creation and in the bible in the verses 1 to 11 so i may preach this psalm as follows the lord encounters us everywhere to call us to worship and prayer and the uh, the lord encounters us everywhere that's the summary of the verses 1 to 11 to call us to worship and prayer that's the summary of the verses 12 to 14 and then we can split up the verses 1 to 11 into two parts the verses 1 to 6 are about the wide witness of as god via creation it's his wide witness as God via creation. Then the verses 7 to 11, they're also showing us how the Lord encounters us everywhere, but now the verses 7 to 11 are His deep witness as Yahweh via His Word. And both sections of the Psalm have this aim, which is in the verses 12 to 14 to call us to worship and prayer. So the wide witness of God as God, via creation, calls us to worship and prayer. The Psalm of David is one of the better known ones, because we all see how true it is that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim that they are the work of His hands. Everyone can look up at the broad expanse of sky, day or night, and be amazed at what they see. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. And the heavens that are meant here are the visible heavens. We see the sun. We see the blue sky. We see the clouds. And whether or not we understand much about them, we are amazed at how magnificent they are. They proclaim the glory of God. This means that they declare how important He is. He's worthy of attention. Worthy of worship. Worthy of everything because He made everything. The idea of the psalm is that the heavens declare to us that they exist because God made them. Their own glory and greatness point to the glory and greatness of one greater. The one who brought them into existence they are the work of His fingers, and this is the very thing they keep telling us. <clears throat> Their very existence evokes from us the question of cause. All people, all people, by nature, ask about the cause of things that's rooted in what human nature is. We just do that. Children at 2 years old start asking why, even when they don't know exactly what it means. And we observe that all things in life have a cause. Houses that stand were built by someone. Gardens that are neatly planted were done so by someone. Computer programs were written by someone. And when things go wrong, would we do the same? We look for the cause. The doctor takes a blood test and he listens to you and he observes. And he's been doing reading to find out why you're ill. Just like mechanics use their eyes and their ears to and their instruments to figure out what's wrong with your car. What's the cause? Even psychologists will analyze conversations and listen to your history and your circumstances to find out the possible causes of, let's say, low self-esteem. So the idea of causality is everywhere. And even little children will ask it to the point that they want to know who made God. But God is the beginning and the end of the chain of causes, the only uncaused being. No one made God because then the one who made God would actually be the one who is the God. But then you'd have to ask, who made that God? And, well, then who made that God? And you could never stop asking about the cause. And the God of the Bible says He is. And always was and is and will be. And we can't understand that because we have absolutely nothing to compare to. Everything we know of lives in time. It has a beginning. It's made. God not God. But because everything we see has a beginning and lives in time, we ask, where did the heavens come from? The most everlasting thing that we know of? Who made the sun? Who made the stars, the moons and the planets, the utterly vast outer space? The galaxies. The human heart searches and wonders, and it cannot find any cause except God. This search and this conclusion happen all over the world and all the time. In this way, the heavens proclaim that they are the work of God. His hands and the skies proclaim His glory. And to emphasize that this happens all the time, verse 2 teaches us that people are confronted with the declaration of the skies and heavens both day and night. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. David had spoken of this sort of thing already in Psalm 8, where he said, when I consider in verse 3, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Now you see in Psalm 8 there, verse 3 and 4, the same response as we get in Psalm 19 at the end, where He gets to the end and in all humility asks God to forgive his sins and make his meditation pleasing to the Lord. He confesses that the Lord encounters him everywhere and all the time and calls him to worship and prayer. So not only does this happen all the time, day and night, as we just saw in that verse, but also everywhere. There is no speech, verse 3, or language where their voice is not heard, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Verse 4. And the voice here means the message. Their message goes out. It's what they have to say. Like a picture is worth a thousand words, so the creation has a clear and lengthy and ongoing message that confronts every person in the world, the voice, the message is everywhere. And it doesn't need a sound system. Even the blind and the deaf can feel the heat of the sun, the vibrations of a thunderclap, and running water on their hands like Helen Keller did. There's no place and no time in the entire world when and where God is without testimony. We encounter Him everywhere and all the time. The sun is something you notice. Like a bridegroom emerging from his room after the first night with his wife. That's the picture in verse five. Or like a great fighter full of power, happy to be challenged, ready for battle, aggressive. That's what the sun is like. And God made the splendid sun to testify to him. Just as He Himself dwells in unapproachable light and we can't look at Him, so even His Son, uh, just His Son, a created thing, will make us blind if we stare at it. And behind its great power is the greater power of the Maker, the Creator of heaven and earth, God Almighty. So the Lord encounters us everywhere to call us to worship and prayer and His witness is as wide as His creation. You can't run away from it. How do people receive this witness? The psalmist's response comes at the end of the psalm. Who can discern his errors? He's dumbfounded. Forgive my hidden faults. He rightly has the sense that there's nowhere he can escape from the God who proclaims Himself everywhere. He also has the sense that this God is in control does all things well and expects a certain kind of response. A certain kind of worship. David feels small and sinful. And that's his response. Now it's rather obvious, isn't it, that this is not the response of all the people in the world today. It never was ever since the fall into sin. They receive this message of general revelation in a different way. And that's why we read Romans 1, the verses 18 to 32. We find there that it's not just God's glory that's revealed from heaven, but something else as well. God's wrath. His righteous, just anger. The wrath of God is against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's being revealed. And this happens in order to maintain the glory of this great and mighty God. He sends trouble and disasters to shake men up so that they will not deceive themselves about this world, about God, and about themselves. But instead of turning away from self-deception, people mire themselves in it more deeply. They push down or they suppress the truth. Romans 1 explains what's really going on when humans reject God. And it is emphatic. It's not that they never knew Him. It's not that they had no chance. It rather speaks about them knowing Him most certainly. Romans chapter 1 says in the end of verse 18 they suppress the truth by their wickedness they suppress it in unrighteousness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them transparent easy to understand it's it's right there that's the point For, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. So that receptors, there's not a problem, they're seeing, they're seeing God's invisible qualities because they're understanding, being understood from what has been made. It's Romans 1. So just like Psalm 19 teaches, the whole world at all times encounters the message of God's power and existence, and now we learn also His wrath. We see, we know, we understand, it's plain, and the sinful response, however, is to suppress the truth, and we call this self-deception deceiving yourself, lying to yourself and being convinced by your own lies. That's self-deception. It really means that you actually know and believe one thing. But then you introduce another belief to cover it up and seal it away. And self-deception really happens. Someone knows they can do something, but let's say they don't want to, and then they because they actually, they can, but they don't want to, they convince themselves that they can't. They can, but they're convinced that they can't. Or someone has a sinful streak of anger, but doesn't really want to deal with it, and so they deny it, and they actually don't believe that they have a problem. And that's why they get so irritated when you suggest that what you're saying has a connection somewhere inside them at a deeper level than they even consciously recognize. It's the connection to something they're trying to cover up. And that's what the world is doing with the glorious message of the heavens and the whole creation. With every person that's made in God's image which is to reflect His glory and to also ask us, where did all these people come from? People do the same thing. They suppress the knowledge of God. Everything is plain. That there is a God. He is powerful. He is judge. He exists. Everyone actually knows that. They do. But they also suppress that. And so Romans 1, verse 20 finishes by saying, so that they are without excuse. No one can say, but I didn't know. Because at a deeper level, they did and they do. Just notice how irritated they become when told they are sinners. Unless God converts their hearts, when people are confronted with sin, then that inner place knows that it's true, but another inner place keeps covering it up. And one of the ways of covering it up is to get angry and try and Stop the conversation in that way. The Lord encounters us everywhere to call us to worship and prayer, but everywhere we close our hearts to the call and suppress the truth. That's the truth. And God, in His Word here in Psalm 19, refuses to let His church continue deceiving themselves. This psalm puts it in black and white. The whole creation presents itself as the work of God and calls us to worship Him. His witness is as wide as creation. We have the very special privilege of having this explained to us and taught to us in Psalm 19 to correct our self-deception so as to lift us from despair and help us come before God authentically. That's the verses one to six in their context of what's the point when you get to the verses twelve to fourteen. Now we need to turn to the verses seven to eleven. This is the deep witness Yahweh via His Word, and that's the <clears throat> more direct way that the Lord is calling us to worship and prayer. God's revelation in the Bible, what people know in a general way from God's creation, preservation, and government of the universe. They know more clearly and fully through God's holy and divine Word. Belgic Confession, Article 2. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That's what gets introduced in verse 7. And the law doesn't just mean God's commands, but all of His written Word. The Word is Torah, Let's use the translation instruction. The instruction of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul, including his instruction for salvation. Nothing needed is missing. The whole message of salvation and truth is found there. This is not then in Psalm 19 just the law that condemns, but it's the teaching of Yahweh that has the power to revive the soul. It's the very law upon which the happy man of Psalm 1 meditates day and night. If the heavens constantly are telling his glory, how much more does his perfect law declare it? And it goes deep. It goes deep right to the soul. Notice the contrasts in the verses 1 to 6. We read of the voice of creation being heard in every Language in place. From Romans 1, we know that it's understood, yet it doesn't get used rightly. It gets suppressed and idolatry is put in its place. General revelation reveals God's glory, leaves men without excuse, but it doesn't convert the soul. But the verses 7 to 11 have the message of God's Word reviving the soul, rejoicing the heart, wisening the mind enlightening the eyes it has a much greater spiritual power in the verses 1 to 6 we were dealing with god just god the creator elohim in hebrew it's god if you want to say in a more generic sense although there is only one god ultimately but in the verses 7 to 11 we deal with yahweh the faithful covenant keeping god Verse 1 is just God and it stays the same all the way through verses 1-6, to but verse 7 introduces the law of Yahweh. It's the Lord in all uppercase letters which represents His Hebrew name, Yahweh. And so you go on. Verse 7, the law of Yahweh uh, and the statutes of Yahweh. Verse 8, the precepts of Yahweh, the commands of Yahweh. Verse 9, the fear of Yahweh and the ordinances of Yahweh. And you... It all continues on speaking to Yahweh until the last verse, "May this, my words and meditation be pleasing in your sight. O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer." So the second part of the psalm, the verses seven to 11, speaks within a special relationship. Here we receive revelation from our heavenly Father, instead of leading us in despair and without excuse. Because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven ever since the fall into sin. Now the Lord comes by and He picks us up. He revives our soul. Verse 7a. And that word is for the turning of the soul. Converts the soul. Returns that soul to God. God restores or brings back the soul from its despair, from its self-deception, from its idolatry, and He restores it to Himself by His Word. Gives it rest from all its restlessness. God also wisens our simple minds. Verse 7b. That is, He teaches us the way of the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to men. The way of salvation. To make wise the simple is to give the true knowledge to those who were Foolish. The Lord's statutes are trustworthy. The verse says they don't mislead or deceive. They give a faithful testimony to who God is and what He wants. And so they can make wise the simple. God also uses His Word to give joy to our hearts. Verse 8a, If we only knew God through what the heavens declare, we would not know the way of salvation, but now we have His holy and divine Word and He lifts us up from despair to the way of salvation. And this gives joy to our hearts. His precepts are right. They're so clear, so free of from error that they show us the way to eternal happiness. This is the way, says the Lord, walk in it. And we rejoice greatly to hear and know that. In verse 8b, the light to the eyes from God's radiant commands refers to what the mind comes to know. Light and knowledge always go together in the Bible. We still talk about shedding some light on the question. We still talk this way. So enlightening the eyes is increasing knowledge. And verse 9a, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And here, uh, fear must be, in its context, another synonym for law, statutes, precepts, commands, and instruction, and so on. But it gives you the sense of this instruction being worked into the heart. The fear of Yahweh. So it's His instruction, as a result of which we fear and honor and worship Him, it's our fear of Him viewed from the perspective of His work as one who is putting that faith in us. And from His side, it's perfect. We pollute it and we don't live by it. We have a sinful nature to struggle against. But the work that God does and the gift He gives is of itself pure, enduring forever. So there's a list of six things said in the three verses, 7, 8, and 9. And then the seventh thing brings it to fullness and wraps it up. Verse 10, they're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Verse 11. Now that reminds us, doesn't it, of something Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. It's more precious than fine gold. The Apostle Paul said that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And Jesus said, if you love Me, you will obey what I command. This is the law of Yahweh, the instruction of Yahweh, which revives the soul and in which the soul then lives. <clears throat> but I ask you then, does the law of your covenant God, Yahweh, revive your soul. Is all the self-deception out of you? Are you all finished already now with suppressing what may be known about God? Or do you find yourself saying with Paul, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death? I think I know the answer. Indeed, so long as we live in this sinful life, we're not finished with self-deception and suppression and substitution, which is idolatry, and wretchedness. That's precisely why we receive the instruction of the Lord. We need it. But when we find the sin in ourselves, we mustn't then go back and say, oh, the law is bad. Not at all. It is divine, perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, sure, and altogether righteous. It reaches down, deep down, and it exposes our selfishness, our idols, our hatred, our lusts, our greed, our discontent, and it puts the light of day upon us all. Through His Word, the Lord encounters us puts us in this moral dilemma, this moral relationship with Him, and He humbles us and calls us to worship and prayer. This grand and lofty psalm exalts God, not man. We come in at the end of the psalm to admit that we cannot even discern all of our errors. We ask for forgiveness that willful sins might not rule over us and that even faults hidden from us might be forgiven. This psalm has the Gospel in it. David seeks forgiveness from the covenant God who loves His people, and he seeks it in the confidence that he will find it. And how is it then that David sees even in the law of God, the reviving of his soul? Isn't it Christ who revives our souls by His Holy Spirit? Yes, it is. But David understands the law of God in a very complete way as instruction including the way of salvation, the command for sacrificing and faith. But David also sees Jesus Christ in the law of God. David was filled with the Holy Spirit to see how perfect are all the ways of God. And Christ was filled with the same Spirit and lived by the Spirit of God without any personal error, unlike David. So of Christ, we may say, Christ is perfect, reviving the soul. Christ is trustworthy, making wise the simple. Christ is right, giving joy to the heart. Christ is radiant, giving light to the eyes. Christ is pure, enduring forever. So are you when He's put in your heart. Christ is more precious than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb, and in following Him, there is great reward. Our Lord Jesus Christ prized the law of God And so he perfectly filled out the blessed words of David in this psalm. David, for all his words, did not live up to the law. Not even up to the glory of God revealed in creation. So he has to pray for forgiveness at the end. But the Holy Spirit still led David to see what God has commanded is in perfect keeping with the creation He made. It is all for the best. It is right and true and pure, and radiant, and trustworthy, and perfect. God's instruction was the perfect guide followed by Jesus Christ. It's in Him that we read this psalm and appreciate it for all that it is. Jesus brings us back to God. He revives our souls from despair at the wrath of God that's being revealed everywhere. And He gives us faith. The fear of God that endures forever. He gives us hope. He gives us love. And as such people, we're given back the law of God. Its condemning power is dead to those who are in Christ Jesus because the principle of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. For those whose sins are covered, God's law becomes a precious and a beautiful thing. It points us to paradise where the law was given and received as a delightful thing before the fall into sin. It didn't accuse, it didn't make us feel guilty to live with God in this relationship in the way He wanted. And brothers and sisters, in principle, that's where Christ puts us already now. And that's our destination. So there's a time coming of no more accusation and no more sin. But along the way, that's where we are, we still struggle with sin. It must accuse us still now so that we can have it back in Christ without accusation. We must first be washed in the blood of Christ before we can love the law of God. But in this interim time, until the coming era when we will fully love God's law, fully obey it, perfectly serve Him as Christ did, until then, we need the Gospel. Until then, we fasten our hearts fully and entirely on Him who perfectly kept the law for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, we can delight in the law of God. But as long as it takes till Christ returns or God calls us home, so long shall we struggle to delight properly in God's law. So, brothers and sisters, it's an act of faith right now to sing Psalm 19 because we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't see the perfection of the law like we should because we're still sinners. And thus, our encounter with the Lord who encounters us everywhere and calls us to worship and prayer is an encounter with the Gospel. He is Yahweh. And He comes to you in faithfulness and love. He is the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Hold on to His promise that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. If you have that, you'll more and more pray that the words of your mouth and the meditation of your heart might be pleasing in the sight of Yahweh, your rock and your Redeemer. May we all be able to come to the end of this psalm and say amen to that. To go home and pray, Lord, even forgive the faults that are hidden from me. Let's say amen to all the psalm. The psalm in which we learn that all people know God because He's constantly, actively revealing Himself through His creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim that they're the work of His hands. As God, He reveals Himself as wide as creation. Verses 1-6. to But sinful humans suppress this knowledge and substitute idols. So, what does God do? He doesn't just turn away, but He reveals Himself as Yahweh to His covenant people to convert their hearts to Him. And He accomplishes this ultimately through Jesus Christ His Son, in whom we must believe. When we trust in Jesus, who did God's will in our place and experience His life-giving Spirit at work in us, we begin to love God's law. And then we can sing Psalm 19 in faith, truly believing that the law of God is perfect, even when it's accusing us of sin. Our response should be worship and prayer to be kept on until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.